Father, we thank you, um, Lord, for just a wonderful time together in you. Father, I just thank you, God, that, Father, our common love for you is what draws us together. Lord, we, we know that we are nobody without you. We know that in us, that is in our flesh, nothing good dwells. But Father, I thank you, God, that because of you, Father, you work in us. Father, you, you make us holy. Father, you have adopted us as your children. You have brought us in into your family, and you are our common Father. And Father, we just give you the praise and the glory this morning. And Father, right now we want to hear from you. Father, I just pray right now that you would speak to us from your word. Father, Lord, uh, whatever it is that you want us to see, Father, give us hearts that you open up, Father, so that we can receive it. Father, I pray, God, that you would give us ears that are attentive to your word and that have a desire to hear from you. And Father, I just pray that each one of us that hear from you will take it and apply it to our lives before we leave today. Lord, I just, again, I pray that everything we say, everything we do just brings glory and honor to you. To you, Father. We are nothing and you are everything. And Father, we, we ask you to have your way in this service right now. And we ask you to do this in Jesus' name. Amen. As uh, Montana read to you, we're going to be... Uh, celebrating Advent uh, in 1 Timothy chapter 3, and I'm going to explain why here in just a minute. But first, I want to remind you that Advent is simply a season of preparation where we are waiting on the arrival of Jesus. It's a time to where we, we don't just wait until December 25th to celebrate His appearing, to celebrate His coming. The word Advent literally means coming. It means appearing. And so we have this season beginning at December 1st that we try to get our children involved with the Scripture reading. We let them make decorations that point them to what we celebrate with Christmas. Uh, the candles. Each week as a candle is lit, it just brings a little more light and a little more light and a little more light until finally He's here and the, the middle light is lit and we celebrate that we're no longer waiting on it. He's here he, and, and He is our Savior and we celebrate Him and we understand what that means. And that is the goal through Advent. It's not just a tradition we do. It's something we've been doing for a long time now. But it's something that we do because we want you as children of God to be prepared in your minds to truly understand what it is that you're celebrating when Christmas morning comes. And so that's what we're going to do in 1 Timothy chapter 3. We're going to take a different section of this every week, but we're going to be in this little section. First off, um, if you have a, an outline with you, you'll see that this is written in there. But when Paul wrote this letter to Timothy, Paul was actually in Macedonia and Timothy was in Ephesus as an elder. Look with me at, hold your place there in 1 Timothy 3 and go to 1 Timothy 1 and look at verse 3 for just a minute so that you can see the context of this. Because this context is vital for you understanding this week and the next few weeks. So 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 3, he says, this is Paul to Timothy, As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, so Paul told Timothy this before he went to Macedonia, and here's what he urged him, You, Timothy, remain at Ephesus, so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. So here's one of the purposes of this letter. In the church of Ephesus, which Paul spent about three years there, and he's taught, he's trained, he's left Timothy as a pastor, 
and now he knows that there are people coming in and they're teaching different doctrines, false doctrines, and so he writes 1 Timothy because he has to deal with the false teachings that are being taught. Alright? That's the first thing. The next thing I want you to know, if you look with me again at 1 Timothy 3, and you'll look at verse 14, notice here's what Paul says to Timothy. I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that... Now stay with me. You're fixing to get the purpose of the letter, alright? You will not get what you need to get out of the Word of God, especially in these epistles, unless you know why the author wrote it. You have to know what the author's original intent was when he wrote this letter, and you come to it with that understanding. And when you come to it with that understanding, you can actually get out of it what God meant for you to get out of it. But too many times we come to the Scriptures without knowing what the author's intent was, and then we try to draw out of it whatever we think it means. And that's the reason why you get so many false teachings around the world. And so one of the things that we see right here, if you keep going in verse 15, he says, If I delay, this is why I'm writing to you, If I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. So again, Paul's writing this letter because he wants to address false doctrines and false teachings, right? He wants Timothy to make sure he corrects it. And then Paul is writing this letter because he hopes to come back to them, but just in case he's delayed, and he probably will be, then he wants the people of the church to know this is how you should live. This is how you should walk. This is how you should uh, present yourselves in the world for the glory of God as the church of the household of God. In other words, there is a certain way that you and I should be living as disciples of Jesus Christ. Amen? And so he writes this, and if you were to go back home today and read the entire letter, you're going to see that he deals with some false teachings. You're going to see that he deals with how to pray in the church, who should pray, how they should pray, what they should pray for. He deals with how men should act and what they should do, how women should act and what they should do. He deals with what... um, Men, with what widows in the church should do, what husbands, wives. I mean, all throughout this letter, Paul deals with how the people of God should behave as the church of the living God. That's the point. But now I want you to keep going with me and notice what he says about this next. Read verse 15 again with me. If I delay, I'm writing this so that you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God. Not the living God. Not, we, we need to understand here. The church belongs to God. It is God's church. It is His people. It is His bride. And it is our job to make sure that we are growing and living in such a way that we are presenting that to the world. That we belong to another. That we don't live for ourselves. We live for Him. And notice what he says next. And it is a pillar, here he's talking about the church, it is a pillar and a buttress of the truth. Here's the picture that he's painting here. The church belongs to God. There's a certain way that it should live and behave. And 
it needs to make sure that it understands that you are living out a truth in your life that it is your job and your responsibility to be a pillar. What does a pillar do on a building? The buttress are the, uh, like the, the things that come down and hit the ground so that it holds everything up. You've got the pillars and the buttresses. And their job is to make sure that all of the church and the truth of it is supported firm. Our job is to make sure that we are living and behaving and growing in such a way that we represent a bride and a people that belong to the living God. And then we are supporting and upholding what that truth looks like in the church. Now what does Paul do next? He gives us a summary. And he does it through a song. What he's fixing to give you next is, scholars have, have known that this is some kind of a confessional song that the church sung back in this day. This would have been like their Amazing Grace. We, we'll sing Amazing Grace and most everybody knows the words of that song. This is a song that they sung very regularly and everybody knew this truth. And so he gives us a summary of the truth. I'm going to begin this week with the first part of the summary of the truth that we uphold because there are many times that the church in today's generation have not upheld this truth. And because they've not unheld this truth, they are not behaving the way that God would have them to behave. And because of that, it's hard for them to be able to say that they are truly the church of the living God. And so we have to be able to look at this truth and make sure, first and foremost, that we understand this truth, second, that we believe this truth, and third, that we walk in this truth. And so here's where we're getting to right now. Keep reading with me in verse 16. Paul says next, Great indeed we confess. Now, some of your versions may say, or without controversy. This is the mystery, great mystery of the church of God. Or there's some versions that may say, by common confession. Your version may say that. The point being is that when you go back and you study the original Greek, what this really means in just a literal sense is this is what everybody that knows the truth confesses. But without controversy, Paul says, here's the truth. Without, um, without anybody that knows the truth being able to deny it because everybody confesses this. This is the truth. Your job is to be the pillars and the buttress of this truth and your job is to live and believe in this truth in such a way that you demonstrate to the world that you are the church of the living God. And so, he says, Great indeed, we confess, is this mystery of godliness. Now the reason Paul calls it a mystery is because this great salvation of ours is something that through generation after generation of the Old Testament, it was a mystery. They, didn't know, they knew little bit by little bit in Genesis, it was just the seed of the woman. That's all they knew. And every time the woman would bear a male child, they would praise God and say, I've got a male from the Lord. And it wasn't because they didn't like women children. It wasn't because they didn't like girls. It was because all they knew about the coming Savior, the one that would redeem them back to a right relationship with God, all they knew at that point was that He's the seed of a woman that's going to crush the serpent's head. That's all we know. 
And then as Abraham comes in, we have a little bit more revelation. And then as David comes in, another promise is given. We have a little bit more revelation. We find out he's going to be a king. We find out that he's, uh, he's going to be the seed of Abraham. We find out that he's going to be a, a Jew, if you will. We find out that he's going to be an eternal king, that his throne will never end, but he's going to come from the lineage of David, and he's going to conquer. And so, little by little, they begin to know a little bit about what this Messiah was going to look like. But it was always a mystery. And until we see it played out in the life of Jesus Christ, until we see His life, His perfect life lived out, that His righteousness fulfills the law that you and I couldn't, and God takes all of your sin and He puts it on Him on the cross. And God takes all of His righteousness, the perfect life that He lived, and He puts it on you as if you lived it. Until you see the life of Jesus, until you see the death of Jesus paying for sins, until you see the resurrection of Jesus overcoming the power of sin and conquering the power of sin, and until you see the ascension of Jesus sitting at the right hand of the Father interceding for you and I, sympathizing on our behalf and ready to come back and receive us and make us new and bring us in, until you see Jesus... You don't know the redemption story. It's a mystery. But it's revealed in Jesus Christ. And Paul here is just going to lay out in a song the simple truths of what it means for you to be redeemed. What it means that God has made you an enemy of His. You know, there are people that say today all the time, they walk around they go, well, we're all children of God. No, you're not. No, you're not. Matter of fact, Jesus looked dead at the Pharisees and says, Satan's your daddy. That's exactly what he said. The Bible tells us in Ephesians chapter 2 that, that all that are not in Christ are dead in their sin and they are sons of disobedience operating under the spirit of the power and the father that they are under, Satan himself. No, we're not all children of God. The children of God are the ones that are redeemed by the Lord Jesus Christ and adopted as heirs with Jesus in the kingdom of God. And until that happens in your life, you cannot claim to be a child of God. But he says here in this text, he says, Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. And then he lays out the very first part of this mystery. The first part of the mystery is that He was manifested in the flesh. He literally came and put on flesh. And listen, this is a very important doctrine because this is where the attacks on the truth that we're supposed to uphold, this is one of the main ones that they usually begin at. It happened back in the Apostle John's day. Go back and read 1 John chapter 1-4 through 4, and you'll see they're denying the deity of Jesus Christ. They're denying that He was God come in the flesh. And then go back and look a little bit further into a group called the Ebionites. They were the same way. They were denying the deity of Jesus Christ. And then we get into, during the, uh, the days of um, uh, Constantine and the um, uh, Nicene, I think is how you say it, the Nicene Creed. 
Back in those days, there was the Arianism religion that rose that basically is today's Jehovah's Witness that, that basically deny, deny the deity of Jesus Christ. They deny that He is God who came in the flesh. And again, my point is not to put anybody down. My point is, is that our job is to uphold the truth of the mystery of our salvation. And it begins with the fact that God Himself became a man like you and me. And there are some people here today say, well, why is that so important, Pastor? Why is it so important that we believe that Jesus is a man? Because there are some that believe that, well, Jesus wasn't really a man. Jesus was simply God in the flesh. He wasn't really human. That's the reason why He was able to live the perfect life. No, Jesus was indeed fully God and fully human. He experienced life to the same degree that you and I experience it, yet without sin. Go back and read the book of Hebrews if you want to see that for yourself. Think about some of the ways that Paul describes Jesus in this letter. Look at 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 17. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 17. Look at what this says. You're going to need to flip with me this morning, alright? So I hope you're ready. <clears throat> well, first off, back up to 16, just so you know who he's talking about, okay? Paul says to Timothy, But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, talking about the worst of sinners, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display His perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in Him for eternal life. And notice, what, look what he says next in verse 17. To the King of the ages, immortal, invisible. What's that next part say? The only God. This is who the praise goes to that is displaying to Paul his perfect patience. Jesus Christ is the only God. And he says here, To Him be glory and honor forever and ever. Amen. Or look with me at 1 Timothy chapter 6. Since we're just going to stay in 1 Timothy, I got, I'm going to give you some more scriptures that you can look up for yourself. But in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 14 through 16, look what Paul ends about Jesus Christ. Paul says, To keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which He will display at the proper time. And here he's talking, I'm going to tell you about Jesus. He who is the blessed and only Sovereign, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. Do you catch that? No one has ever seen or can see. Jesus Christ is the invisible God made visible. God is a Spirit, Jesus, before He became flesh, was also a spirit being. As John tells us in John chapter 1, He was known as the Word. And the Word became what? Flesh and dwelt among us. But John would say to you, in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God and the Word... 
Jesus Christ, and again, let me give you plenty more. Acts chapter 20, verse 28. Colossians chapter 2, verse 9. Uh, John chapter 20, verse 28. Uh, let me just remind you of this. Some of you may not remember this, but in Revelation chapter 20, John has been in conversation with this angel, massive angel. I'm talking about an angel that he put one foot on the land and it covered all the land of the world and he put one foot in the sea and it covered all the sea of the world and here little John is. And when John sees him, you know what John does? John hits the ground and he starts to worship him. And you know who wouldn't? If I saw something like that, I ain't staying standing up. And John begins to worship him and the angel says, Ah! No, 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 get up. Don't you do that. I am a servant just like you. But let me tell you something. When the children, when Jesus was riding in on the donkey and the children were singing, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And they were shouting and singing, Hosanna and Hallelujah. And then the Pharisee said, You better tell them to be quiet. He said, I can't tell them to be quiet. Because if they were to be quiet, what would happen? Those rocks would cry out. Jesus did not look at them and say, Uh-uh, don't you worship me. I'm just a man just like you. No. The Bible tells us that God alone is to be worshipped and Jesus was worshipped over and over again and never once did He ever look at anyone and say, Don't you worship me. You know why? Because He's God. And He deserves the worship. I could go on and on about that. But again, the point is this. Jesus is fully God in the flesh. One scripture, hold your place in 1 Timothy. Go with me to Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17. I want you to look at this. Because you also need to understand that He is fully human as well. Look at Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17. Because it's vital that you understand. God came and was revealed to us in the flesh. Hebrews chapter 2 verse 17. Look at what this says. And it's talking about Jesus here. Therefore, He had to be made like His brothers in every respect so that He might become a merciful and a faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because He Himself has suffered when tempted, He is able to help those who are also being tempted. So He cannot just come here and just be fully God. He has to come here and He has to experience life in the same way that the people that He is coming to save experience life. He is tempted in every way as we are yet without any sin. And so here He is able to be able to sympathize with yours and my weaknesses because He experienced it but only as God in the flesh but He is able to sit by the right hand of the Father now. And if you want to read more about that, you can go to Hebrews chapter 4 and you can read it. But He is able to sit at the right hand of the Father and He tells us, He bids us to come to the throne room of grace to receive mercy in our time of need because He is able to sympathize with our weaknesses. 
We have an advocate at the right hand of the Father that every time we come to Him with our sin, He is somebody that can literally look at you and say, I understand. Keep trusting in Me. I forgive you. Keep trusting in the blood. My perfect life has been applied to you. All of your sins, past, present, and future, were applied to me on the cross. Jesus has to be fully human because God can't die. And the only way that our sins get paid for, the wages of sin, is what? Death. Death. We have to have a Savior that is both fully God and fully human. And again, some of you are saying, well, why is that important? Well, I just told you why it's important that He's flesh. And that's just two reasons. There are many more. But the main two reasons is that you need somebody who can sit at the right hand of God the Father who can't understand your weaknesses. You need somebody that sits at the right hand of the Father as your advocate or your lawyer, as 1 John says. And every time you come to the throne room of grace, you get to receive mercy and grace in your time of need because you've got one sitting up there that understands. And so when you read, He was revealed in the flesh, every time you falter and every time you fall and every time your heart breaks with godly sorrow because of your sin against Him, you are to come back to this song that says He was revealed in flesh and go, God, thank You. Thank You that You became flesh. The two songs we sung this morning I don't think could have been any more appropriate for this message at all. It is God actually the great mystery of the gospel that the Creator becomes like His creation. The one who holds all the planets and the stars and gives us our every breath. The one who keeps sparrows from falling in the sky. The one who has absolute sovereign control over all things. Not a star shoots without His permission. Not a lightning bolt goes without Him telling it where to go. And yet... We see him lying in a manger at his mother's breast as a helpless babe. Why? Why? Not even in a king's bed. Have you ever thought to yourself, you know, if I were God and I had to come down here to save people, I got no problem with that. I'm putting my robe on. I'm putting my crown on my head. I'm rolling out the golden staircase. I got angels with trumpets lined on both sides. And here I come. But that's not what he did. He put on humility and clothed himself in the lowest of the low. He said, foxes have holes and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. I heard a riddle not too long ago, and the riddle went, Who was it that owned everything and yet borrowed everything? Jesus Christ. He owned it all, and yet when He came, He borrowed everything. And so we look at this mystery, and we see that it is so beautiful to see what He did to make us the church of the living God to make us right with Him, and it begins with Him becoming flesh. Look with me next, why it's important to believe that Jesus is God in the flesh. Number one, because only God can forgive sins. 
In Luke chapter 5, verse 21, you can turn there with me if you want to. There's a story. Jesus has been doing a lot of miracles. He's developed a very large crowd. And people have come from all over to hear Him teach, All right, But there is this paralyzed man. And his friends are with him. Now I've always thought that was a little funny because you know I wondered if maybe his friends are the reason he was paralyzed to begin with. I don't know because they awful they awful serious about getting him to Jesus. They feeling some kind of guilt, right? So maybe they were the ones that looked at that friend and say, "I dare you to whatever it was." I don't know. But here yeah, here's the story. We got these friends that are trying to get their paralyzed friend to Jesus, and they are so desperate to get him there that they're willing to tear the roof off of where Jesus is. And they tear the roof off and they lower, Je- they lower the paralyzed man down into where Jesus is at. And Jesus looks at him. Let's start with me in uh, chapter 5, Luke chapter 5, verse. Um, actually, let's start in verse 20. And when he saw their faith, the friend's faith. He said, man, your sins are forgiven you. Now that's, that's pretty important because, don't get me wrong, that's not exactly what they were looking for, right? They thought there was a bigger problem. They thought the problem was, Jesus, you don't get it. Our friend can't do anything for himself. He's paralyzed. Now listen, I thank you for forgiveness of sins. But that's not really why we're here. But look what happens next in verse 21. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question God saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Why is it a blasphemy? Because look at this next truth. Who can forgive sins but who? Listen. It ain't necessarily me that you have offended with your sins. Now, yeah, in some ways we offend each other with our sins. But the problem with our sins is that it's ultimately an offense against God. And God alone is the one that can forgive the sins. No one else can do it. God is the only one that has the authority to forgive your sins. And the only way He forgives any sins is through Jesus Christ. That's it. But Jesus here looks at him, he says, your sins are forgiven. The the Pharisees accuse him of blasphemy. He doesn't look at him and say, no, no, you don't get it. No, no, anybody can forgive sins. That's not what he says. Look what he says next in verse 22. When Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, why do you question in your hearts? Because which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven you, or to say, rise up and walk? And that's a good question. Because we would think to ourselves, well, maybe it's easier for him to just say, your sins are forgiven. No, actually, it's easier for someone to say, rise up and walk. You want to know why? Go back and look at all the prophets of old, at the people they raised from the dead, at the people that they healed, at the things that they did. Men, other men in the past, have told people to get up and walk. But how many people have ever been able to honestly say, your sins are forgiven. So which is easier? What he's saying here is, I have done the thing that nobody else can do. I have just forgiven this man's root problem. And the point is this, only God can forgive sins. 
And Jesus here is telling them that I am God. You're right. Only God can forgive sins. But you need to understand something. I have the authority to forgive sins because I am God in the flesh. And here's the, the thing that we need to understand in this. You and I don't deserve God's forgiveness. Let me, let me show you another scripture. Romans chapter 5. Look at Romans chapter 5, verse 6 through 10. Maybe if I keep you flipping, it'll keep you awake anyway. <clears throat> Look at Romans chapter 5, beginning in verse 6. Now I want you to understand when we read this and you read the word we, he's talking about us, all of us. Now let's figure out who we are, because we always think we're the center of God's universe. <laughs> we always think God's all about us. God's all about me. God is just me and God got something going on. Yeah, listen. All right, look at, look at who we are. Verse 6. For while we were still what? Weak. All right, so first off, what are we? Weak. So while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for who? That's who you are. So you're weak, you're ungodly, and then look at verse 7. For one would scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. But God shows His love for us in that while we were still what? Sinners. So we're weak, we're ungodly, we're sinners. We're not a righteous person that some people might die for. Then in verse 9, since therefore we have now been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. That's what we deserve because we're weak, ungodly, and we're sinners. Verse 10, For while we were what? I'll just stop right there. I don't have to go no further. We do not deserve the forgiveness of God. We do not deserve the mercy and the grace that He shows us in Jesus Christ. And that's why it's so extravagant. The more we see who we are, and the more we see who He is and how we have offended Him, the more His grace really ought to become amazing. The more you ought to be able to sing with the great... Um, uh, is John, what John Owen? Who wrote? Um, Newton, John, Newton. John Newton. The more you ought to be able to sing with John Newton... Oh, wretch, the wretch that I am. I once was blind, but now I see. And you will not experience that until you truly understand what He did for you when He became flesh. You did not deserve it. What you deserved was His wrath. And I want to tell you something. I want you to think about this just a minute. I've done this before, and, and I almost want to pick some people out. Just think for a minute. I need you to do this, every one of you. I need you to think about the worst moment of your life. I'm talking about the moment that there was such pain within you that there was, as far as you were concerned, it was hopeless. I need you to think about the moment in your life, or maybe moments, maybe you've had several, I don't know. But I need you to think about the moment in your life right now. For a lot of people, it was the, the death of a loved one. 
for a lot of people. For some people, it's your child is sick with cancer and what do you do? I mean, I, I can't even fathom to think about that. I just pray to God when I even crosses my mind, I think, God, no. No. But I, I just want you to think about the moment in your life, whatever it was, to where you experienced the greatest suffering that you have ever known. The pain that just, it, nothing could make it go away. And I want you to take that and I want you to understand that the Bible tells us that that is only a glimpse of God's wrath on sin. Just a glimpse. Now I'm not saying that everybody that gets sick or everybody that loses because of a sin you committed, but I'm saying that death and sickness is in the world because of sin. Period. And the point of every one of those things, you know, there, there are a lot of people that say, well, I don't really want my kids to go to the funeral home. You know what? I want my son to go to the funeral home every time I go. You know why? Because I want him to see the reality. The reality is we are in a cursed world because of sin. And I want you to think about that moment, the pain that you felt. I want you to really think, and I know it hurts. I know it hurts. But I want you to think about this. That is actually God's grace to you. You know why? Because that's God saying to each and every one of us, this is what it means to be opposite of me and you're still only getting a small glimpse of it. Now I want you to take that pain and I want you to take that feeling. Come on guys, y'all stay with me. And I want you to multiply that by infinity. And now I want you to think about what it would be to experience that and it never ever end and it never ever get better. All you experience is weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's a place where the worm never dies. That's what He saved you from. Because that's what you deserve. We look at, we look at um, people that get sick and we look at situations and we think to ourselves, we don't deserve that. Yes, you do. And you deserve far worse. Far worse. And if you don't think you do, it's because you don't know who you are and you don't know who He is. Now on that same thing, I want you to think about the moment in your life that was the greatest moment that you've ever been in. The moment in your life when you were so filled with joy that you didn't think, you, that you thought you could just explode. Maybe for some of you is when you held your first child. Now that second one's not as important. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Maggie's not even in here. so. <laughs> but you're holding... Your newborn baby, or maybe it's a granddaddy. I remember I, I was talking to somebody the other night about a granddaddy. They, they held their grandchild for the first time, and they, um, they were telling me that, uh, oh, I can't even remember who it was, but he said that that grandbaby reached up when he was holding him, and he said that baby, it was, new, it, was, it was little bitty, but it reached up and it put his hand on his cheek and just held it there. And he said, literally, my heart melted. And he said, ever since that day, 
He said, I, that, that is my baby. And I mean, and that may not be it for you. I don't know what it is, but surely you could at least remember some moment in your life to where there was joy. There was joy. And you loved it. Now I want you to take that because even that is a grace of God. What do I mean by that? Because God lets you have a mix of both in this world now. You deserve only wrath. That's what you deserve. But He holds that back and He only allows you to experience small glimpses of it. And at that same time, you don't deserve any of His grace. And yet right now, He gives you small glimpses of it. And the point is, He wants you to look at the wrath of this world that you deserve and He wants you to look at the grace that He offers and He wants to warn you with the wrath and He wants to woo you to His grace. The Bible says, it is the goodness of God that brings us to repentance. The goodness of God. In other words, when we look and we see His love for us, when we look and we see His greatness for us, listen, what you deserved and what He is giving you by coming from heaven and entering into flesh so that He could be your great high priest, so that He can die and forgive all of your offenses, so that He can look at you and say, your sins are forgiven you. Your greatest need is not that He looks at your sick loved one and says, get up! Don't we wish it would happen? One day He will. One day He will. But that's not your greatest need. Your greatest need is to have somebody, God in the flesh, that can look at you in your sin and can say, your sins are forgiven you. Your sins are forgiven you. And can I tell you something? If you don't do anything else good for me in this life, if all I experience from here on out is nothing but the curse of this world and I never have another joy, my sins are forgiven me. My sins are forgiven me. And I have a, an advocate at the right hand of the Father that came in the flesh that lived a life that I couldn't live, that gave me His righteousness, that took on my sin. and made me an heir with Him to all of the kingdom of His Father that belongs to Him and Him alone. And one day, we're going to get a crown because He made us heirs to reign with Him. And when we truly recognize who He is and who we were, you know what you're going to do with that crown? I know who I am. And I'm beginning to know a little bit more about who you are. But the reason why you understand that Jesus is God and you must believe it is because only God can forgive sins. If Jesus is not God, He cannot forgive your sins. Let me show you another reason. The next thing I want you to know is that only God can pay for your sins. Go with me to Psalm chapter 49. Psalm 49. Remember, these are the truths that we have to uphold. We have to 
We have to stand on these truths. We have to make sure that we're living in this truth. And we have to make sure that we're always defending this truth. People look at you and say, well, it's not that big a deal. Listen, if they, they serve the same Jesus we serve, if He ain't God in the flesh, they do not serve the same Jesus we serve. That's the truth. And so look what he says here in Psalm 49. Psalm 49 beginning in verse 7. Truly no man can ransom another or give to God the price of his life. For the ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice that he should live on forever and never see the pit. What's he saying there? We are all sinners. As good as I think Kirby might be, Kirby's life cannot pay for my sins. Kirby is going to have to take an eternity to pay for his own sins. How can he pay for mine when his own life won't even suffice it? I hear people say that all the time. They say, listen, eternity in hell just seems like extreme. No, the problem is you don't know who you've offended. You don't know what you have done. You don't understand the seriousness of your sin. And you need to understand something. You will spend an eternity trying to pay for this thing, but you will never finish dying because you will never get it paid. You owe that much. One man cannot pay for the life of another man. So what are we going to do? Skip down with me to verse 15. I love verse 15. Actually, it started verse 14. Psalm 49. Like sheep, they are appointed for the grave. Death shall be their shepherd, and the upright shall rule over them in the morning. Their form shall be consumed in the grave with no place to dwell. Oh, but look at verse 15. But God will ransom my soul from the power of the grave, for He will receive me. No man can pay the ransom. And it seems hopeless until you get to verse 15. But when you get to verse 15, who is going to pay it? God's going to pay it. God is the only life that is sufficient to pay for the sins of mankind. You say, that don't make sense to me. Preacher, listen to me. When the Son steps up to the Father perfect as He is in all of His glory. And He says, I love them so much that I will give my life for them. That is a soothing aroma, the Bible says, to God. The death of Jesus Christ, the willing sacrifice. Remember what Jesus said? He said, nobody takes my life from me. I lay it down willingly for the sheep. When Jesus was hung on that cross, Paul said in Ephesians that it was a soothing aroma. That God was sitting up there going, Why? Because of the love that was demonstrated in it. Because of the mercy. You see the greatness of God's love. You see the greatness of God's mercy. You see the greatness of God's grace. And the Bible tells us that on that day when we are sitting in the heavens, that the, all the angels are going to be looking at us, the church. This is in Ephesians chapter 3 if you want to read it for yourself. 
But all the angels are going to be looking at us in the church. And they're going to be praising God for His manifold wisdom, for His rich mercy, for His grace in saving people like us. They're going to look at us and we're there and they're going to say, who has mercy like this? You remember what Paul just said? You know, somebody might die for a righteous person, but how many of you are going to give your life for the child molester? How many of you would die so that even Hitler could be saved if he put his faith and trust in Jesus? How many of you are going to love somebody who is your worst enemy to the point that you would give your life for them? I'm going to say something that offends some of you. Some of y'all wouldn't pee on them if they's on fire. Right? But here we see a love and a mercy and a grace demonstrated that only God has. He is the only one. And so only God can forgive sins. Only God can pay for those sins because you don't have enough to pay for them. And only God has that much love, that much mercy, and that much grace that it would require for somebody to die for somebody like me and somebody like you. And so this truth that we uphold, this Christmas that we're fixing to celebrate, can I tell you, if God did not become flesh, you don't have any of that. You don't have forgiveness of sins. Your sins are not paid for. And you have no love. And you have no mercy. And you have no grace. But I've got good news this morning. The song goes like this. He was revealed in the flesh. And that is the truth that you and I uphold. I go back and I end with this, the greatest joy. I told you to be thinking about that moment. Now take that moment and multiply it by infinity. Imagine living in that moment, only it is immeasurable of the joy that you are experiencing in it. Imagine being able to live in that moment and growing in it forever and ever and ever so that it only ever gets better and better. And that's what He purchased for you. You you don't deserve it. But that's what He purchased for you and that's what He gave you. So I pray this morning... The application of this is pretty simple. Remember who you are. And you think about who He is and what it meant that He came in the flesh and what He's done for you. And in the process of that, as we move closer to the day that we celebrate Christmas, I pray this season that you don't just see a baby in a manger, but you see your God, the great Creator, becoming like His creation so that He could forgive us of our sins, so that He could pay for our sins, so that He could save us from the wrath we deserved, and so that He could give us the joy that we don't deserve. 
and so that He could always be an advocate for us sitting at the right hand of the Father because He's always able to understand where we are and how weak we are and why we do what we do.